Welcome to The Hydrophiles, the HR Wellingford podcast. I'm Sally Jackson and today I'm joined by Ian Gunn and Mike Case to discuss the role of water in the energy transition to our zero carbon future. Ian is a civil engineer specialising in marine environments. He has more than 20 years experience um, and he is also our energy sector lead uh, looking at where we can help with the energy transition. Mike Case has 10 years experience in renewables, has worked all over the world, has been with HR Walling for about three years. He's our business sector lead in renewables and what Mike doesn't know about renewables and nuclear is really not worth knowing. So how is the way we're producing energy changing? So it's not just the way we're producing energy, it's um, the way we're consuming energy as well. So we're transitioning from fossil fuels typically to renewables, which generally produce, well, always exclusively actually, always produces energy in the form of electricity. And increasingly we're consuming energy in the form of electricity to avoid consuming it in the form of um, fossil fuels, uh, for example, in heating our houses or running our cars. For the, for the UK at least, and for a lot of Northern Europe, we're quite densely populated. So, and the problem with renewables, onshore wind and solar in particular, they take up a lot of land space. And, and also the, the resource for, for Northern Europe and a lot of countries, wind is the obvious resource. Um, renewable resource and the wind, uh, the quality of the wind and the, the the sort of power density you get from the wind offshore is much better than it is onshore because it's much cleaner. There's less turbulence, um, and so you get a higher capacity factor from from the from the wind turbines. So pushing up pushing renewables offshore makes sense for for a lot of countries. And onshore, is there, are there other watery options that are available? Well, there's obviously hydro, and hydro is a big, is you know, is a backbone of, of power in, in lots of countries, and, and always has been. Norway being Norway being one of them, which is runs, I think, over ninety percent of hydro, and we have some hydro in this country, but we just don't have the geography. We don't have the sort of high mountains and the and the, the kind of the steep valleys, and the, and lots of rivers in the same way they do in 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 some other countries. You know, we don't have the mountain ranges like the Alps and the Pyrenees to. Um, to run the you know to to give you the, the the head difference to run hydro so hydro in the UK is relatively relatively small um, a relatively small resource compared to uh, say a wind or offshore wind. So it sounds like offshore wind's the uh, obvious choice for this country and for Northern Europe. Is building in water more complicated than building on land? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Tell us about yeah. that. <laughs> um, so some of the, the issues you have with building in, in, in water, um, particularly in, in around Northern Europe, for example, is, is the, the water environment, because we have quite high tides, um, the environment it's very dynamic and the seabed's very dynamic. So unlike on land, if you bury a cable a metre deep, you can come back in 20 years time and the likelihood is that cable will still be buried a metre deep. In the sea, because the seabed is so mobile, and it's so dynamic and it's moving all of the time and you have all of these features, you have sand waves, you have sand, kind of sand dunes, ripples, mega ripples, all of, the, all of this um, and all of the sandbanks as well. Um, and so when you bury cables or you put a structure on the seabed, you can't guarantee that that seabed will be the same in five, ten years or even six months time. 
um, and it's always moving. So that's quite a big challenge for foundations in particular and also for um, cables and, and how you protect and how you bury cables. It's a big, working in the sea is really difficult because of the seabed. And then on top of that, you have the additional forces that you wouldn't have on for, for a, a wind turbine on land because you have the wave forces um, on the structure itself as well. And then, of course, all the corrosion from the, um, from the salt and the, you know, and the water. Because it's, it's, so it's quite a, um, it's a harsh, harsh environment to put man-made structures, really. It sounds like wind turbines are going to be crucial to our zero carbon future, but they're going to be difficult to build over time. Now, clearly, we've got a lot of wind turbines, uh, wind farms around the coasts of the UK. So what, what has been happening to make sure that those wind turbines are, are safe and are going to be resilient to the future? So we've been working closely with a lot of the developers um, to look at particularly around, around the seabed, around scar protection um, and to make sure that's designed properly. And from what we've seen, of, you know, it's still a relatively young industry. We're talking really 10 years old, maybe 20 years old at Bush since the, the very first pilot project went in. Um, and there's a lot of learning and there's still learning happening. I mean, there's still cable failures, there's still failures in cable protection systems, um, in uh, underestimation of uh, scour uh, and how the seabed works. So there's lots of learnings, you know, still to do. Uh, and, and I guess uh, having the expertise and really understanding the, what those processes are, having a deep understanding of them, and how they interact with the structures is really important because it's very easy to get it wrong. And for any non-engineers amongst us, can you tell us what scour is? It's basically erosion of, of sand or, 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 or the seabed around the structure. So you can get very big holes developing normally behind, on either side of a structure depending on which direction the flow is going. And it digs a hole basically behind the structure and it can and it can destabilize structures. It can either leave cables kind of uh, um, free spanning, so you end up them they're kind of flapping about in the breeze, if you like, or you can have you know you can have foundations undermined, um, and they become unstable or they resonate in a different way than they should. It's worth noting that the, these effects are not unique to renewable structures. So that you know there's plenty of structures that have been built in the marine environment over the past and HR Wallingford's got lots of experience dealing with that. What's new with renewable, the, although the industry is new, some of the technical aspects of what we're dealing with are stuff that we're well capable and um, have good knowledge on. The difference with renewables is the extent of the, or the number of the structures that are going in. It's a re really interesting point. I and mean, how many structures are going in at, at the moment? Um, at the moment, we've got roughly 10 gigawatts of offshore wind and, and a, probably an equal amount of onshore wind. The target for the government to reach net zero is, I see different figures, that the, the current target is 70 gigawatts installed, um, but, but other modelling I've seen says up to 100 gigawatts. Um, also, what you have to remember is everything uh, that's being installed now, because the lifespan of a, of a wind turbine or a wind farm is, is between 20 and 25 years, so all the projects that are being installed now or have already been installed will all be decommissioned by 2050. 
<clears throat> and so it's a, so there'll, there'll be a, a bit of a battle to catch up really. So the 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 rate of of construction for offshore wind, if you want to reach seventy gigawatts or even hundred gigawatts, is enormous. Uh, I mean that's you know it's ten more than tenfold what we already have. And what does that hundred gigawatts look like in terms of land area, in terms of the amount of turbines going in on our, around our coastlines? Well, it's in, it's 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 enormous, and and, and what we're seeing now in in, in the UK because the UK are kind of uh, world leaders really in in deployment of offshore wind, uh, and what we're seeing is it's becoming quite constrained because once you start overlapping the other uses of the seabed, you know whether it's for fishing or whether you have environmental um, sensitivities in certain areas, like, um, you know, uh, for sensitive bird species, or whether it's for military use. Um, when you, once you start over or, or shipping, and once you start overlapping those those different uses, you start really constraining where the, you know the the seabed, particularly closer to shore. So there's a number of factors which will probably push offshore wind further offshore. And does decommissioning cause other problems or other challenges to be solved? It well, I mean, this is something from we can learn. I think from the from the oil and gas industry. Um, because it, it will do, the, it's the only, I think there's only a couple of turbines being decommissioned so far, but in the coming years, in the next 10 years, the, the early rounds of, of wind, wind farms will be decommissioned. Um, and it's how you remove you know, large monopiles, which are hammered, you know, 10, 20 metres, 30 metres or more into the seabed, how you remove them safely um, without causing too much disturbance and what you do with the cables, how you remove the cables. Um, so there's a number of, there are some challenges coming up with how you decommission wind farms. On decommissioning though, again, a key difference with historic sources of energy is with wind farms, while there'll be structures which need to be removed, that you don't have the risk, the pollution risk that you have with decommissioning from oil and gas. And that brings me really nicely onto what I was just uh, thinking about, which was, does building these new assets in the sea actually cause more environmental problems than it solves, you know, with, with the construction of wind turbines, um, you know, as you say, uh, bird species, is there any kind of, is there any trade-off, you know, around that? I think the impacts are, are very low, the impacts on birds, they're, they're, I think in the early days there was a lot of concern about um, bird strike, um, but what they've found over years is, is that birds actually avoid turbines um, because it's a sensible thing to do. But there are, yeah, the, so the impacts of, of offshore wind are relatively low. And remember that whilst they take up a large area, the actual, the, the real physical footprint of each turbine is relatively small, and even the cables is relatively small because they're spaced, you know, the, the large turbines now, they'll be over a kilometre between each turbine. Um, and so, the, the, the relative impacts are, are, are still very low and it's still a very, well, for the UK at least, I think it's still probably the, the, the best way, the best renewable resource we can access. And how about during construction, you know, noise, um, underwater noise for fish, um, how can you manage that sort of effect? Well, some of the work we do is on modelling and understanding underwater noise and how that transmits through the water column and you can mitigate there are, there are a number of ways you can mitigate that either the type of piling that you do the way you the way you hammer these uh, foundations into the seabed 
Um, you can vibrate them in, for example, or another method is to use bubble curtains where you create a, um, basically a curtain of bubbles around, um, around the structure and that absorbs some of the piling energy and reduces the transmission of the noise through, through, the, through the water column. And how about other technology apart from wind turbines? So there's uh, tidal and a floating wind. There's a new, obviously, it's, uh, a new, a new uh, capability that's coming through in the UK. Um, do they have the same sort of challenges? Yeah, certainly the marine energy in general is tidal and tidal energy, tide, you know, tidal range and um, uh, tidal stream, um, and also you've got uh, you know hydrokinetic and, and wave energy devices. The, the, the challenges are similar in, in that it's a very it's a very harsh it's an extreme environment that you're putting these machines in um, I mean particularly for tidal stream devices where they're putting in them in really high high flow velocities um, and also you have uh, the, a lot of issues with accessing the machinery for maintenance so it depends on on the on the design so there are there are a number of challenges there what a key difference between that and wind is the amount of locations that are suitable for it. So with wind, as Mike says, we're, we're really lucky in the UK. We've got huge swathes of seabed that are, that are suitable for deployment of wind, uh, of, of um, wind power. Whereas for tidal energy, there's, there's nowhere near as many suitable locations. You know, globally, where you have those, those conditions, it's between islands. So I think for certain island nations, that's probably a very good good option, but there's not the yeah the breadth of of, of areas of suitable sites that you have globally uh, in the same way that you do have for for offshore wind. So floating has become a really um, interesting area um, of development because you can go further offshore, you can have bigger turbines. Um, and with you know with with less constraints on 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 the seabed if you like and then it's also I mean we're very, we're very blessed in the UK and a lot of northern Europe is we have a very shallow continental shelf um, and so we're looking at seabed depths of between say 20 and 50 meters but lots of countries Japan as an example or maybe the um, the west coast of the US where, where it shells very quickly it's not suitable for fixed bottom offshore wind and and that's where floating offshore wind is really, really exciting. And I think it draws quite a lot of parallels with the oil and gas industry in terms of learning. It, it does. I mean, so the oil and gas industry have had floating uh, facilities offshore for many, many years. A big difference again, though, will be the fact that with the oil and gas industry, they typically have one or two positioned over an oil field, serving perhaps different functions. So they're very much bespoke devices uh, or, or bespoke facilities, uh, whereas for floating offshore, you're going to be deploying many more. The key difference there, that rather than building one or two in some shipyard in, say, Korea, that you then ship over to wherever, you, wherever it is, you're more interested in building many or at least fabricating many reasonably close to where they're going to be deployed. So that, that will have an effect on the UK certainly because there'll be jobs potentially helping to uh, fabricate those devices before they're taken out. Um, so, so there's a whole challenge uh, around understanding the, um, the port logistics and also the transport and the towage to site as well. 
And how about the rest of the world? Where are we seeing exciting developments in marine offshore um, energy production? Um, there's all over actually. It's it's incredible. I mean, offshore wind is is, is growing exponentially, and I think uh, floating offshore wind will will closely follow suit. Um, I mean, we've got everywhere. The U.S. is is growing a big market. Obviously, you've got Northern Europe and the Baltics are now um, really growing in in offshore wind, and then you have the kind of APAC region where you, Taiwan is probably a, 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 the most mature market where they they've developed quite a few offshore wind farms, and they're still developing more. And then Japan, South Korea, Vietnam, even India, Australia. Um, yeah, there's 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 offshore wind being developed all over the all over the world. I suppose we couldn't talk about the transition to clean energy without mentioning nuclear. So uh, where do we stand on that? You know, how 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 do we see that as part of the energy transition? Well, I think with 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 all renewables, they are all intermittent. Um, whether it's solar, whether it's wind, whether it's hydro, probably to a lesser extent, but certainly wind and offshore wind is intermittent. And whilst the capacity factors now are, are, are quite high, um, over 50%, um, there are still days or even weeks where you, you might have an Atlantic high in, and that, cover, that can cover basically the whole of Northern Europe where there's essentially no wind. So if you imagine a situation where we have 100 gigawatts of, uh, of offshore wind on the grid, and then the next day there's none, and this and that happens. Then how do you replace that offshore wind? What's there to, to back it up? And at the moment, what we do is we use gas predominantly. So going forward, if we need more, as we electrify our power system, if we move up, if we electrify transport and particularly heating, which is a big chunk, probably two thirds of domestic energy is on heating. Um, if we electrify that then the, obviously the power, our power demand will, I think some estimates are it will at least double by 2050. And then you need something to back that up. So you really need that backbone of power, which is always on, um, which you can rely on, which is kind of dispatchable power, which is what nuclear is. And I think really the, the, it's, at present, it's the only alternative I can see to low cost, this kind of dispatchable firm low carbon power is is nuclear and that backbone historically has been provided by coal hasn't it so it's, it's you know it's great that we've managed to get largely get rid of coal in the uk um, but that in itself has created a gap why is water important to nuclear doesn't it's sort of not an obvious link there so well water is the primary source of um cooling so all power stations need need, need to Call themselves as part of the process of, of generating the power um, and in the case of nuclear that usually comes from water that's taken out, either out of the sea or, or out of a river um, and it's, it's, it's run through the power station through heat exchangers and then, and then put, back in the, put back in the sea with just heat added to it. And so what do we do to help manage that process? Well, we've, we, that particular issue is not unique to nuclear. Any, any form of power station uh, can have uh, water cooling. Um, and so what we do is we'll, we can help design, undertake the hydraulic design of the cooling water systems, but also look at the impact of that thermal plume. Um, so that's in two ways. One is the impact of the 
plume from an environmental point of view. And the second way is the potential for that plume to recirculate and come back into the, into the intake for the same power station, which obviously you don't want either. A lot of the nuclear sites, because of the need for cooling water, they're located either close to large rivers or on the coast. And then you have the issue of flooding to think about and so and or coastal protection. Um, so a lot of the work we do is around and because they're very long lived assets as well, you know, a typical lifespan now of a nuclear plant is about 60 years. Um, so you really have to plan, uh, plan ahead for, for, for storms, you know, you're looking at storms and storm surges and maybe extreme conditions. And I suppose because these plants are built in and around water, a lot of the access is also via water. That's right, yeah. We, we also design the, what's often called MOLFs, which is the um, marine offloading facilities. Um, and they're used in the UK for, the, for, for most of the UK plants. They have some kind of um, a marine offloading facility. Um, and we help with the design of design of those and the design and testing of breakwaters, you know, as part of protection for those. Um, and also the, you know, we're, we're blessed to have, you know, one of Europe's largest um, ship um, navigation simulators. So we also do a lot of the, the navigation simulating and training pilots of how to use the new facilities before they're even built. We can be training pilots on, on, on how to use them. Ian, you've worked in the oil and gas sector for a long time. Um, do you see a change of appetite from the big players or is it sort of business as usual from them? Oh yes, um, the, the oil and, it's, it's important to note actually that the oil and gas, the major oil and gas companies have taken environmental um, issues very seriously for many years. Um, but the big players really are starting to get into um, renewables. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we see that it is interesting and it is changing the market dynamics as well. So the big oil, the oil and gas majors, if you like, you know, your Totals and BPs of this world and Shell, they're actually piling into offshore wind now really in quite a big way. Um, and it will be interesting to see how, how, how that changes the, the dynamics of the market really, which has been led by a few, um, I guess you could, you could say, uh, you know, the likes of Orsted from, from uh, Denmark, uh, Equinor um, from Norway and a few a, a few other companies have really been RWE have, have been leading the market and now you've got these big you know these big oil and gas majors are really uh, entering the, the the offshore wind market in a big way and also uh, you, you see the uh, the oil majors they're very interested in uh, floating offshore wind um, and I think you know as Ian mentioned I think because of the skill sets they kind of they, they have a lot more experience in that kind of environment the deep water environment um, and they've got uh, you know they've, they've got those skills and that experience so they're kind of more suited to floating offshore wind in, in some respects so they already have that that knowledge in-house. And they've got a really good track record of delivering large projects so you might see a change. I mean, up to, up to date, wind projects have typically taken quite a long time to develop for various reasons. Um, the oil and gas majors, I suspect, will speed that process up. There's a lot of positivity for the future. Perhaps each of you could tell me what you think the most exciting development in clean energy is. Maybe starting with you, Mike. I don't know where to start really because I'm, I'm, um, there's lots of exciting things happening in, in the nuclear sector for example with um, small modular reactors and um, new types of technology, there's, there's kind of this, the sodium reactors where you, um, 
where you have combined nuclear powered storage uh, and then also the potential for hydrogen production from nuclear and then you go into offshore wind and you have the obviously the scaling up of uh, and just a massive um, rolling out of offshore wind and fixed bottom offshore wind and then obviously really exciting industries in in um, floating offshore wind and there's also exciting stuff happening in marine energy so yeah I don't know where to start really. Generally exciting Ian? Well for me it's just it's just the energy transition so you, you, you know we're, we're I wouldn't say on the cusp of it because we're, we're, we're into it but we're in a position where we know things are going to change quite rapidly over the next 10 to 20 years you know and we know some elements of that so we know that offshore wind will be a significant component of that, but there's other elements of that that we currently don't really know. Um, and that's quite exciting. So we know that things are going to change in a big way, in all sorts of ways. But for someone that's working in the energy sector, I, you know, I relish that prospect that, that, that there's going to be lots of new stuff to work on. Well, that's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Thanks, Mike and Ian, for joining me on The Hydrophiles.